All right. Jay, how are you? Let me pray for our time and we'll uh we'll jump into the to God's word. Father, thank you. Um we we praise you for your sovereignty, your grace, your mercy, your your almighty power. Father, uh, we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. That your spirit would take the written word and help us to understand the truth of it that we can live differently and glorify you and um help uh, help this time to um to be edifying to each person here in uh, Christ's name we pray amen all right luke chapter 13 luke 13 so Luke chapter 12 and 13 kind of kind of blend together the it's it's all one it's a continuing conversation so there's not really a break here um it begins in verse 1 it says there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices um so What's the incident that's brought to mind? There's, there were Galileans that were offering sacrifices. Other translations actually state that, that they were killed, that Pilate had killed them while they were offering sacrifices. So it, it's... A pretty rough um, incident. They're seeking to act righteously, so they're they're offering sacrifices. So they're they're seeking to do what God wants, and they're persecuted, even killed for it. It really begs a, this question of how can God allow bad things to happen to, to good people? And it also shows that what they were expecting from Jesus, they wanted him to free them from this oppression, this Roman oppression. They wanted him to be the conquering king, not just the suffering servant. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I stole this diagram from Roy's study of of Job. Um, it it's these four quadrants. You know, along the x-axis, you've got, you know, good and bad behavior. And then on the y-axis is how you're treated. You're either treated good or bad. And um, which quadrant do people think that we should fall in? If you're treated 
uh, or if you if you act good, how should people treat you? Good, right? So, you know, and if you if you if you act badly, you should be treated poorly, right? I mean, that's what that's what everybody thinks. That's what our society promotes. And that's what people have thought through all through the years. They think it's only fair if good people are treated well and evil people treated poorly. Job's friends thought that. In fact, they they chastised him because he was suffering. It's like, okay, what have you done? They thought he had done something wrong. And he wouldn't confess what he had done, and so it created a big hoopla. People think it's unfair if good people are treated poorly or, on the flip side, if evil people prosper. What's the problem with that view? Are any of us good? No. Now, some are worse than others, obviously, but but none of us deserve to be treated good. None of us are righteous. We all deserve consequences for sin, but God is merciful. He withholds the punishment for sin, and that allows these bad or evil people to prosper. Jesus points out that the murdered Galileans were no worse than others. They were all sinners. They all deserved punishment for sin. What action does he call for? Calls for repentance, right? So, what is repentance? Well, biblical repentance, um, I've gotten a chance to work with with Kirsten a little bit lately, and um, she's helped me on a lot of things to to get better definitions on things. And, And this is one of them. Biblical repentance, it includes a change of mind, and I'll use an example of someone who has an alcohol problem. So the next morning they've got a hangover. They, they're sad about what they did. I wish I hadn't drank so much last night and I wouldn't have a headache this morning. Well, it's, it's also a change of heart in that if it's real repentance, they're going to be like, I hate what I did. And I, I'm not gonna. I'm making a commitment to not do it again. And then it's a change in behavior, and that they follow through, and they live differently. So repentance is not just, I'm sorry for what I did. No, it's much deeper than that. It's a change of mind, a change of heart, and then a change in our actions. Does that make sense to you? And he brings up another example. He says, or are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, 
Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So he's got a second example here. So we don't know all the details about Siloam, but it was it was likely a, a reservoir of water outside of Jerusalem. And they used an aqueduct to to supply water to the city, and they were building a this tower, and it collapsed, and 18 people died. So the big question is, well, how could a sovereign God allow such a thing? And, and Jesus' response showed that if, well, if God responded to sin with immediate justice, we'd all be in trouble. I know I, I was 26 when I came to faith in Christ. If, if God had responded to all of my sin up to that point, I wouldn't be standing here. I would have suffered long ago. Personal sin is, is not the basis for all evil in the world, but all even the, evil in the world is a consequence of sin. It's either general sin or personal sin, and and there, everyone will ultimately be held accountable for their actions. But God mercifully delays that judgment. Moving on, on he, he tells them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in the vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So you, you see the balance of God's attributes of justice and mercy here. Um, in his commentary, Chuck Swindoll actually calls the, the vine dresser and the, and the uh, owner, he calls the owner justice and the vine dresser mercy when he's describing this parable. And it, it kind of makes you, helps it to, to be easier to understand this just owner sought to cut down the fruitless tree, but the merciful vine vineyard manager wanted to give it more time to bear fruit. And, and you see that balance with God in that he graciously gives mankind time to repent before he justly judges us for our actions. We're all going to one day give an account for our actions. And at that point, unbelievers will face the, the just penalty for their sin. That's what this parable is showing. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. 
she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her out over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. So it's another day. You know, he, he's in the, this, one of the synagogues, the Sabbath, and he encounters this woman. This woman had been disabled by a demonic spirit for 18 years. I periodically have back problems. I have a slip disc, and I go to see Dr. Burris, and he straightens me out. I've never gone 18 days with my back hurting without going to, let's get, let's take care of this. I cannot imagine 18 years of of this pain. She she had to to feel just hopeless that that God had abandoned her and okay, I'm just this stuck with this. Jesus initiated this this intervention with her. She was in the the synagogue, so she's evidently Jewish and a worshiper of God, but she hadn't sought healing from Jesus. He reached out to her in compassion to free her from this disability. He relieved her of her disability and and it's an ongoing action, the words, the way it's phrased. She immediately was made straight, and it was a permanent thing. And as a consequence, you know, not only is, is she healed, but more importantly, God is glorified. She glorified God. If you look at each one of the miracles, when when Jesus did miracles, he always made sure that his father was glorified through that, that miracle. As expected, But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So opposition was prevalent in Jesus' ministry, and we see that here. the ruler of the synagogue is upset because he healed on, on the Sabbath. He failed to see this, this healing came from God. He attributes the work to a human, a human act. You know, he suffered from legalism. Legalism refuses to condone actions that bring others joy, but fail to keep their unbiblical rules. 
they had this rule that you, you, well, you can't do this, 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 and this on the Sabbath. And uh, Jesus broke their rule, and so he condemns him for it. Jesus' response is recorded next. It says, Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So Jesus points out their hypocrisy. A hypocrite is someone who lies with their actions. So they've got rules, but then they they don't follow them. Their actions break their rules. So they're, they're lying with their actions. He points out they're willing to work for their animals on the Sabbath. But then he criticizes Jesus for healing this woman on the Sabbath. He then describes her as a daughter of Abraham. Um, maybe they had denied her that position because of her condition. Or, or because of the demonic oppression, she, she didn't feel like she was a daughter of Abraham, but now she is. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So these people respond you know, his adversaries are put to shame, but the people rejoice at his miraculous works. The opposition for Jesus from his ministry is growing despite the miracles that he's doing. The division seems to be growing between those who reject him and those who follow him. These miracles are revealing his deity, but they're denying that. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So the illustrations typically have one main point. So what would be the main point here? What is a seed? Does anybody know what a mustard seed looks like? It's, it's a really tiny little seed. But then a mustard plant is is a pretty large, it's a bush, but it's pretty large. I think they can get up to like 10 feet tall or something. I mean, they're pretty big. So the, the point he's making is that something very small has a great potential. His coming had the ability to change the world spiritually. That potential was there. And like many 
biblical truths, it has a dual meaning. It has a near meaning and, and a more long-term meaning. So the near meaning, we're, we're seeing that with his miracles, right? He's changing people's lives. Those who followed him when he was there, they were different because of their interaction with Jesus Christ. He healed them physically. He healed them spiritually. He granted them forgiveness. Gave them the gift of eternal life. Well, in the long term, when he returns, he's going to have a tremendous visible impact when he takes his role as the conquering king. Things are going to change. Oh, I wish it was tomorrow. It will be different. And then he had another illustration. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. So, this illustration tells us something about the kingdom of God as well. That leaven is, is yeast. So when you, you put a little yeast in some, some dough, it doesn't affect just one little spot, does it? It spreads through the entire batch of dough. The ministry of Jesus Christ is going to transform the world. It's inevitable. Um, the gospel has been and continues to transform lives. It's spreading throughout the world. When he returns, he's going to complete that transformation of the world. It's happening now, one person at a time. Things will be dramatically different when he returns. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So he's still got his, his focus on Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. What's the question that's raised? Basically, it's why are there so few people that follow you? Why? Why are the majority rejecting you? Is that what, the way it's going to be? Will there only be a few that are saved? His message is being heard by many, but there were few that were believing it. The rejection by, by many is, is obvious. His followers could also have some doubt about well, if, if so many are rejecting him, is he really the Messiah? 
is he the one or not? Again, they, they've got a, a wrong view of the Messiah, thinking he's going to be the conquering king. And so they're thinking, well, if, if so many are rejecting him, maybe he's not going to be the one that frees us from Roman oppression. Maybe he's not going to fulfill our desire. So he, he responds by telling them about this narrow door. So, so property at that time typically had a, a large entrance for receiving deliveries. But then there'd be a narrow door, and that was the approved way for a guest to come to the, to the property. The guest wouldn't go through the delivery door. No, that's, it's, like, it's like the big roll-up door that you, you, know, you see at a barn or something. No, it's this little side door. That's the approved entrance for guests. Well, the narrow entrance, if it's the approved one where people would be welcomed, what's the approved entrance for the kingdom of God? The approved way is simple. It's faith. That's the only approved way. You can't, you can't come through the wide door and enter the kingdom. You can only go through the approved way, which is faith. You have to believe in the Messiah. And then he, he tells, has this statement, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. His illustration, they'd basically be trying to enter the through the wide door. Well, what are ways that people try to enter through the wide door? Well, well I, I, want, I go to church all the time. My, I give. Um, you know, I, I serve. I, uh, I'm better than whoever, I mean, you can come up with somebody that you, you're better than. You know, if the approved way is faith, then every other method is going to fail. They're, they're trying to enter through the wide door with their religious practices. You know, I, I like this definition of religion. Religion is man's attempt to earn God's favor. And if, if you have that, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship where God has reached down and graciously redeemed us. We are not trying to earn his favor with good works. Now, should we do good works? Yes. The good works should be done, but they're a proof of our, that our faith is genuine. They're not trying to earn God's favor. 
we've already entered through the narrow door of faith, and then he uses us, uses our good works to glorify him. You know, good works and religion and even positive thinking is not going to get you into heaven. It's not going to earn your salvation. When once the master of the house had risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. What's the point of emphasis in these verses? There's going to be a judgment, right? It's the same illustration to say that the time for salvation is limited. An entrance requires that we know the master. The master of the house here says, I do not know where you come from. Elsewhere, he says, I do not know you. To know the master is to have a relationship with him. It's not just information about him. It's a relationship. In Hebrews 9.27, it says, just as, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, it confirms that salvation is available only in this life. Once a person has died, they're going to face judgment. The judgment is based on their faith. Did they have faith in Jesus Christ or not? That's the means of salvation and the only means. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God that you, you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be, be first and some are first who will be last. So, Jesus contrasts two places here, right? One's good and one's bad, right? One is a place to avoid and one is a place where we want to be. Um, the first one is, I mean, they're the eternal dwelling places for mankind. Unbelievers are going to be, they're going to suffer eternal destruction and separation from God. It's punishment for their sin. That's the weeping and gnashing of teeth described. It's torment. It's, it's not something you would wish on anyone because it's continual. It's eternal. It's, uh, it's hard to even fathom how bad it will be. But then on the flip side, believers are going to 
enjoy eternal fellowship with God. Again, it's, it's beyond what we can truly comprehend. For eternity, we will worship and praise God. We'll have that sweet fellowship. No pain, no, no sin, no. It's, it's really indescribable. It says that some will recline at the table in the kingdom. And that's, he, he describes it as from the east and west and north and south. So it's, it's, salvation is available to all different people. It's not just for Jews. It's Jews and Gentiles. Um, I think this statement of last being first and first last is, is referring to Gentiles as well. Uh, the Jews would be disturbed by this because they thought they had an exclusive relationship with God. He had chosen them, but that doesn't mean that, that he's not reached out to Gentiles as well. Um, this passage to me is very clear that you know salvation is available to all. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons to perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So he's warned about Herod. You know, he's saying Herod wants to kill him. Um, these people who warned him probably opposed Jesus. And the reason I say that is because he tells them to go back and report to Herod. So it's like they're cronies of Herod is what it looks like to me because if they were truly followers of Jesus, he wouldn't have sent them back to Herod. So this appears to be people that oppose Jesus. Um, he responds that, calls him a fox, tells him that he had a plan of action to fulfill and, and it wasn't going to be altered. Again, Jesus had his focus on Jerusalem. His mindset was to accomplish what God had called him to do, which was to be the sacrifice for our sins. How would his followers have taken this dialogue? Again, they're, they're thinking of him being the conquering king, right? If you're opposing everyone, how in the world are you going to generate the support to overthrow the Romans? 
So they probably were disappointed at this point. Okay, how, how are we going to get there? How are we going to overthrow the Romans when you can't even get along with the religious leaders? And Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's got a very strong message for the people of Jerusalem here. Um, he points out that their rejection of the prophets that had been sent to them, they'd even killed them. This was going to continue after Jesus' ascension. An example is stone, the stoning of Stephen. You know, Jesus sought to enlist them as followers, but they rejected him as Messiah. And he, he then tells them that they won't see him again until he comes as the conquering king. So what are some principles from this? Um, receiving salvation includes repentance of sin. And here our actions need to reflect our faith as much as our words. Repentance is, genuine repentance is going to show because you live differently. It's not just going to be in your words. Actions speak louder than words. Uh, the, the approved method or approved means of salvation is, is faith in Jesus Christ. Religious works, whatever else you want to bring up, won't earn you favor with God. The only means of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. And then believers should trust God for the words to respond when persecuted for their faith. Jesus did, and as he's an example for us of how we should live differently. We need to trust him that when we're persecuted that he will give us the words to speak. So how well do your actions reflect your faith? Do, do people even recognize that you're a believer? Is your source of true hope Jesus? He needs to be. He's the only genuine source of hope. And then when you're persecuted, who guides your response? I'll admit that my, my first response is often uh, defensiveness. And, and then I'll, uh, you know, maybe later I'll pause and Hey, Lord, how would you want me to respond to this? I need to be quicker to do that.
Any questions or comments? I know I didn't explain it that well. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that through him we can have salvation. We can be forgiven. We can live differently, empowered by your spirit. Father, we thank you for your word that um, you've given to transform us and glorify you. I pray that you would continue to, to work um, through our time this morning, through your word, uh, help our worship to glorify you. Father, our desire is to know you better and to serve you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.